You're listening to the Tri-State Community Church Podcast, a ministry of the Associate Reformed Presbyterian Church located in the greater Pittsburgh metropolitan area. For more information, including service times, please visit us at facebook.com forward slash Tri-State Reformed Church. So Psalm 5, we turn to these 12 verses this morning, uh, really 13 if we count the title. So Psalm 5. Let's hear the word of the Lord. To the choir master for the flutes, a psalm of David. Give ear to, the wor- to my words, O Lord, consider my groaning. Give attention to the sound of my cry, my King and my God, for to you do I pray. O Lord, in the morning you hear my voice, in the morning I prepare a sacrifice for you and watch. For you're not a God who delights in wickedness. Evil may not dwell with you. The boastful shall not stand before your eyes. You hate all evildoers. You destroy those who speak lies. The Lord abhors the bloodthirsty and deceitful man. But I, through the abundance of your steadfast love, will enter your house. I will bow down towards your holy temple in the fear of you. Lead me, O Lord, in your righteousness because of my enemies. Make your way straight before me. For there is no truth in their mouth. Their inmost self is destruction. Their throat is an open grave. They flatter with their tongue. Make them bear their guilt, O God. Let them fall by their own counsels because of the abundance of their transgressions. Cast them out, for they've rebelled against you. But let all who take refuge in you rejoice. Let them ever sing for joy and spread your protection over them, that those who love your name may exalt in you. For you bless the righteous, O Lord. You cover him with favor as with a shield. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we do call on you, O Father, for a blessing to be of all us this morning, Father. We ask as we seek to understand your word that you would teach us and guide us, O Father. Fill us with your truth and fill us with truths about your character, O Lord, and help us to understand some of the difficult sentences that are in this psalm, O Father. And help us, O Father, we pray, to align our lives and our hearts with these things. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Amen. Well, I, I'm, I have a, a bit of a, you know, I was thinking about this this week. You know, I have kind of a concern and almost a fear, if you will, that there's a lot of people in the church that will never hear a message on Psalm 5. I mean, some of you probably would agree with me if you're familiar with Psalm 5. There's probably a lot of our brothers and sisters that will never hear a message on Psalm 5 or many of the other psalms that are like Psalm 5. Why? Because there's some hard sayings in Psalm 5, isn't there? We just read through Psalm 5, and perhaps there's a few sayings in there that maybe jarred you a little bit. This is uh, often referred to as one of the, as the first of what we call the imprecatory psalms. If you've got a study Bible and you've ever read the introduction to the Psalms, you'll come across that saying, you know, the imprecatory Psalms. What is that? That's when the psalmist is, is, is praying for judgment upon his enemies. And we have trouble with that. We think, wait a second, we're supposed to love our enemies. And how do we reconcile loving our enemies with this, uh, with these prayers that are very clearly calling for judgment and calling uh, for covenant curses to befall their enemies. So uh, these these verses actually have um, have caused a, a lot of we might say uh, theological heartburn, if you will, uh, for a lot of folks. Um, but we're we're called to preach the whole counsel of God. We must preach the whole counsel of God. Not just, you know, I said last week after Psalm 4, I think I said it to Donald. I think it was you, Donald. 
It was fun preaching Psalm 4. Next week we do Psalm 5. <laughs> you know? Um, I don't take any pleasure in this. That's what I want to say. I mean, anybody would stand up here and take pleasure in some of these things ought not to be standing up here at all. Um, so we don't take pleasure in this. But I think that what we're going to find that as we begin to understand these, as we begin to do the hard work of rolling up our sleeves, understanding what's going on here, that we're going to see that we can actually gain a lot of strength from these hard sayings. That's the title of this morning's message is strength from hard sayings. Uh, I think we're going to, when we see what David is doing here, I think we're going to see that we can get a lot of strength out of this. If you look at the title, we're told that the psalm is given to the choir master for the flutes. Uh, if you have a King James um, translation opened up, flutes is not translated. The Hebrew word is given. And that's because there's some obscurity over some of the words in these titles. Again, if you have a study Bible, there'll probably be a sentence or two written about the titles and the, and the introduction to the Psalter. And uh, some of these introductions will inform you that these words are very old and they're very obscure. And we know, we have good reason to believe, even the Greek translators all the way back and think... 200 B.C. struggled to translate these because the words were already very ancient uh, in 200 B.C. Now, we need not worry about that because this in no way changes uh, the message of salvation. Um, it no way alters the message of salvation. Um, but we should, we should be um, wonderfully comforted by the fact that these words are very old. David writing this psalm, he's writing this psalm approximately a millennium before Christ comes. So we're reading a psalm that's 3,000 years old, perhaps. Um, now, notice it's given to the choir master. Now, what's that mean? Well, the choir master, what is the choir master's job? The choir master is in charge of the singing in the temple. What's that mean? What's the significance of that? Well, we don't just have a prayer here. We also have a psalm that is intended to be sung. So, you know, these hard sayings that we have here aren't meant to be swept under the rug. They're meant to be sung in corporate worship. Does that make sense? God is, the Holy Spirit is not giving us these hard, hard sayings and then sweeping them off in the, under the rug in obscurity. The people of God are to be singing these things. And we're going to see how that can be so very important as we go along here. So here we're seeing, and one of the first things I want us to put together here is that prayer and worship are put together. And again, to speak, you know, to Dean's request this morning, you know, the importance of worship, isn't it? It's important that we worship. It's important that we pray. It's important that we pray uh, through the week. It's important that we walk around praying without ceasing. It's important that we worship through the week, but it's so vital that we worship together, isn't it? Prayer and worship belong together. Now, if you look at verses 1 and 2, at least part of verse 1 and part of verse, all of verse 1 and part of verse 2, the psalmist says, Give ear to my words. O Lord, consider my groaning. Give attention to the sound of my cry. So here we have words, we have groaning, and we have crying. Now, that shouldn't sound like something strange to us, given the week that some of us have had this week. Monday was a rough day, wasn't it? It was a rough day for a lot of you, and it was a rough day for this family that I already mentioned in the service, you know. It was a rough day for her, you know. I, I got the text um, and, you know, what was, what was really um, 
tough about this. Monday morning, I get a text from this young, this young lady who we just, Tammy and I just adore, give us this text and said, you know, my, my father has passed away. Would, would you come and do the funeral? And normally that's, hey, that's no problem. But I was supposed to be in Washington, D.C. on Friday. Now, I will confess that when I first started praying to the Lord, it wasn't words. I was going, oh, oh, does that sound familiar? What's that mean? It means, what do I do? How can you be in two places at one time? The doctrine that we get from verses 1 and 2 is so clear and so wonderful and so beautiful. It's that God can put our groanings into words. Now, how can he do that? It's because he perfectly knows how you feel. Oftentimes, one of the most frustrating things that we have, especially in marriage and in relationships, is the other party doesn't quite understand how we feel. And it's true. Sometimes we don't know how the other half feels, do we? I mean, we would almost be lying if we said, oh, I know exactly how you feel. If they're going through something that's a little bit different than anything you've ever been through, then there could be some truth. I don't know exactly how you feel, sweetie. I don't know. But from the doctrine that we get right here, it's not true of God. And it's comforting, isn't it? To know that God knows exactly how we feel. He knows exactly how you feel. In fact, he can take your groanings when you can't even put it into words. He can take your groanings. In Romans 8, 8, 26, tells us the Holy Spirit takes these things and presents them. He intercedes on our behalf and presents these things to the Father perfectly. What a great God we have. So here we are when we're, we're uh, in the midst of our groaning. Give ear to David is coming like this, and he's, he, he's, he has some words. Maybe initially it's just some babbling but he has the groans, and the groans are the heartfelt ones, aren't they? And he's coming to the Lord, and he's asking the Lord to give attention to the sound of his cry. And notice he says in verse 2, my king and my God. It's interesting that the king of Israel says, my king and my God. You know, the psalmist speaks about the kingship of God very often, and oftentimes it's, the king, it's God's kingship over creation. You know, he is the governor over the sun. You know, what keeps the sun up there? What keeps the stars up there? What keeps them all doing what they're supposed to do? God is, God is the governor or the king or uh, of all of creation. But other times, God's kingship is shown to be his king over his people. And that's the case here. And let's think for a minute. Notice how this is strengthening David's prayer. Because David is calling out to God. He is not only, Yahweh is not only David's God, but Yahweh is also David's king. As my king, O Lord, come and deliver me. Rule over my enemies and subdue them. Make my way straight before me, as we're going to see here in a couple of minutes. For to you do I pray. Do you see how that's strengthening uh, David's um, prayer and his petition? In verse 3, O Lord, 
In the morning you hear my voice. And morning is an interesting phrase when we come across morning. You know, this might make us think of Lamentations 3 verses, uh, 20, I think it's 22 and 23. Yes, if we, if we don't have any verses of Lamentation memorized, perhaps we have these verses that says His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. And the reason we might have those memorized is because of one of the hymns we just sung this morning, Great is Thy Faithfulness. Morning by morning, new mercies I see. All I have needed, Thou hast provided. Great is Thy faithfulness, Lord, unto Thee. I was saying that when I was this big. You know, it was the melody at first attracted me to this song, but this is the power of music. And God knows the power of music, and he's given us a hymn book. The power of music, our children are singing these songs, and and we're really blessed. I'll tell you, we're really blessed because the songs that we sing are so rich theologically. Many of them are right out of the Scriptures. And let's, you know, we need to be thankful for that. Let's not take that for granted because I've been in other worship services where we have left and we've been like, what was that that we were singing? It didn't make any sense, and it could be sung anywhere. It it wasn't even necessarily Christian. That isn't the case with the songs that we sing. So let us be thankful for that. Oh, Lord, in the morning. The morning is an emblem, if you will. In many ways, it's symbolic of new mercies. It's symbolic of of a fresh start. You know, as many of the old preachers used to say, the darkness has now ended, and now the light is coming in, you know. Uh, morning, in the morning you hear my voice. In the morning I prepare a sacrifice for you and watch. Here we have this idea of sacrifice, which is an exercise of worship in the Old Testament economy, right? Here we have worship, we have prayer, and added to that we have expectation. This is another important doctrine. Not only should we take prayer and put it in the context of worship, we should be praying, we should be worshiping, we should be praying in the midst of worshiping, but we need to pray with expectation. David says, I prepare a sacrifice for you and watch. Now you'll see there's a little um, footnote if you have an ESV open, and the footnote will take you down in the margin, and the margin it'll say, or I direct my prayer to you. It's an alternative translation there. Um, that that some can take. Obviously, the ESV translators believe, and more it's more likely that I prepare a sacrifice for you and watch. But either way, it doesn't compromise the idea that there's expectation. And that's the point that I want to make. As we pray, we've prayed this morning. We prayed a number of requests. Let us add expectation to our prayers. That not only are we going to pray and we're going to worship, but we're also going to expect. We're going to, we're going to wait. We're going to wait in watchfulness. Lord, how are you going to answer the prayer? And the picture here is David's offering this sacrifice in the morning, and he's watching. And, and the, the darkness has subsided. The light is coming in. And Lord, maybe today is the day you're going to answer my petition. I'm looking to you for new mercies this morning. Does that make sense? And it's one of the great things we see from this psalm. Now, verses 4, 5, and 6, it gets a little bit hard. In verses 4, 5, and 6, I'll read them all together and we'll look at them individually. For you're not a God who delights in wickedness. Evil may not dwell with you. The boastful shall not stand before your eyes. You hate all evildoers. You destroy those who speak lies. The Lord abhors the bloodthirsty and deceitful man. Now, why is that in here? If you ever ask that question, you read this, and it's verses 1, 2, and 3, we get 
We get to verse 4. What is David up to here? Well, he's appealing to the holiness of God. This in general is appeal and appeal to the holiness of God. You know, Habakkuk, uh, uh, what is it, One thirteen says, you who are of pure eyes than to see evil cannot look at wrong. That's the idea here. God's eyes are so pure that he cannot look at wrong. In fact, Albert Barnes commenting on Habakkuk one thirteen says, as a man turns his head from sickening sights, so God's abhorrence of wrong is pictured by his not being able to look towards it. And the idea is just as... You know, we might see something sickening and we turn our heads so we can't see it. That's God's, that's, that's, that's the Holy One of Israel's disposition towards sin. And it's, it's speaking, if you will, to his holiness. You're not a God who delights in wickedness. Evil may not dwell with you. Verse 5, the boastful shall not stand before your eyes. You hate all evildoers. That's a jarring statement for us, isn't it? How do we rectify that with, with the fact that Jesus came? You know, John 3.16, For God so loved the world that, that He sent His only begotten Son, that He might die on the cross in our place so that all who believe in Him can have salvation. How do we reconcile John 3.16, if you will, with what is said here? You hate all evildoers. We're going to iron that out this morning of how we can settle that. But before we do, look at verse 6. You destroy those who speak Lies. The Lord abhors the bloodthirsty and deceitful man. Now, what, what's going on here? Well, haughty eyes, the boastful, if you will, haughty eyes over and over again in Scripture, we're told that the Lord will, he abhors haughty eyes, he abhors hubris and arrogance, and he is eventually going to put it all down. We're told that over and over again in Scripture, aren't we? In fact, uh, Proverbs 6.16 says, there are six things the Lord hates, seven that are an abomination to him, haughty eyes, a lying tongue, and hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked plans, feet that make haste to run to evil, a false witness who breathes out lies, and one who sows dis court among brothers. Look how much lying is being made reference to there. In God's eyes, lying is not a small matter. It's a huge matter. It's a big matter because sometimes lies actually cost people their livelihoods. Lies can even cost people their lives. Lies have been told and it has started wars. Lies are a serious matter in God's eyes. The boastful, the haughty, they shall not stand before you. You're not a God who delights in, in wickedness. Now, how, why, why would David appeal to all of this? Well, David is in all likelihood surrounded by enemies. And what is David doing? In order to strengthen his faith, in order to strengthen his argument, he's appealing to the holiness of God. You know, on Wednesday night at our men's meeting, we were looking at uh, the word blessed. It's the second week in a row we've looked at that word. <laughs> we're making great progress. We started on Psalm 1, and we haven't made it past the first word. Here we are. We're going into week number four. You might not think we're getting much done. But and this word blessed, the point that we were trying to make on Wednesday was the future orientation of the word blessed. And what David is doing is he's future-oriented here. He's looking at the fact that all of this evil that is surrounding him on every side, all this evil, is going to get put down. And he's calling on the very holiness of God because the holiness of God demands that this evil be put down. Does that make sense? You can see how 
David is using this now as we think about injustice, perhaps. I mean, you know, I was thinking of different illustrations we could use, you know. I mean, every generation has had to deal with this. When you have evildoers that are continually getting away with stuff, doesn't that irk you when you can clearly see they're doing this stuff, but because they're in certain positions, they keep getting away with it, and they keep getting away with it. And they're pulling stunts that if anyone in this room pulled it, we'd immediately be in jail. But they keep doing it. And because they've gotten away with it so many times, they start to get this idea of, I'm untouchable. You know, they start to fill with, with, this, with, this, um, with these haughty eyes and this boastful attitude, if you will. And how is the church to deal with this? Well, we can't deal with it unless we're dealing with these passages, can we? So we see how important these passages are, but these passages are teaching us how to do this. Verse 6 tells us that God will destroy those who speak lies. Think about how much lying goes on when people are worming out of stuff. It takes a lot of lying to worm out, worm out of stuff, doesn't it? You remember when we were kids? You know, you, you could just tell the truth or you could go the other way. And We've all done both, haven't we? We've all fessed up and told the truth and then you deal with it. But all of us have probably at one time or another decided we were going to tell some fibs and try to get out. Well, that becomes a mess, doesn't it? Then you're not in Half the time you're in more trouble because of the lying you did than what you initially... You get yourself in more trouble. And that's something that we need to take into consideration when we're watching people get away with stuff and we think, look, they're, they're getting off scot-free. They keep getting off scot-free. No, they're not. We need a future orientation here. Actually, and someone said, well, that, when, when, when are they ever going to be punished? They're being punished right now. Say what? They're being punished right now. No, they're not. They keep escaping justice. They're scot-free. No, 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 no. They think they're scot-free. They think they're untouchable. But one way that God can judge us is by letting us get off the hook. How's that work? What happens when you get off the hook? You think you can do it again. You become prouder. You become harder. The more you get away with stuff, the more harder your heart gets. That's a judgment. But think about if this is left unrepentant, and the longer this goes on, the less likely repentance is coming. And if this is left unrepentant, by getting off and getting harder and getting prouder, they're heaping up increased judgment upon themselves. Their punishment ultimately is going to be more severe than it would have been. They're being punished now is the point that I want to make. And now we, we can't see that unless we're looking, unless we're future-oriented, can we? And why? Because of the holiness of God. His holiness demands it. And we're going to also see as we go along that the consummation of God's kingdom demands it. We want Jesus to return, don't we? But when Jesus returns, what's he going to do? He's going to put away all evil. It's going to necessitate this. Namely, that those who speak lies are destroyed. You know, as I was preparing for this message, one of the things that I really, my heart, I pray that these youngsters that are with us will see a day in this country where they can turn on an address given by whatever, whether it be the governor, whether it be the president of the United States, or whether it be any leader, and they would be able to say, I know these are facts because the president said so. 
But we can't do that now. We've allowed a culture of lying to go on so long that there isn't a person in this room that expects the truth to be told in those things. You have your fact check that follows afterwards. And no one, how's any, you be the, tell me, how do you expect the fact check to go? Should, should the church be silent about that? Should we be silent about that? I think we should demand truthhood. I really think we should demand that our leaders tell the truth. And when they lie and we catch them lying, which you can do all the time, everything's taped today. All you got to do is compare the tapes. They should be called on it. You lie to us. Now, pray. But they say, you know, you're right, I did. I'm, I ask for your forgiveness. All oh, then forgiveness is offered right away, isn't it? We forgive you. You know, knock it off. We're not going to put up with this anymore because we want our kids to raise children that can sit in school and the teacher turn on the television and hear a part of the address and what they hear actually be the truth. But we're not in those days now. There's a culture of falsehood. And it's satanic. Someone said, that's a strong word. What does Jesus tell his opponents in John chapter 8? He says that Satan was the, a murderer from the beginning and that he is the father of what? He's the father of lies. Lying incessantly like that is satanic. It's not something that we should leave for our children. We need to speak out about it. We need to call it out. We need to call it out in our own lives first. You know, let's rid our own lives of any deceitfulness. And then we need to call it out into others. Now look at verse 7. There's much more that we could say about verses 4, 5, and 6, but look at verse 7. There David says, But I, through the abundance of your steadfast love, will enter your house. I will bow down toward your holy temple in the fear of you. Here again, that word B-U-T is carrying a whole bunch of freight, isn't it? A contrast is being set up. Those who speak lies are going to be destroyed, says David, but in contrast, David will enter the house of the Lord. And what David is referring to is something that we've already encountered in Psalm 1. We're told that the wicked will not stand in the judge, or will not stand in the congregation of the righteous. They will not stand. But one thing I want to point out here is that David is not being presumptuous. David is also a sinner, and so are all we. You know, in our, in our prayer this morning, maybe this is why I prayed this way this morning, is because it's so on my heart. Listen, we can only be brought into God's house by his steadfast love. But what's meant by his steadfast love? His covenant love. God's covenant love. What covenant love? That hesed love. You know, for the joy set before Jesus, what did he do? He endured the shame of the cross. He endured the penalty of the cross. God steps out of time, space, and history, lives that perfect life. So he has this perfect righteousness to offer everyone who calls on him. And he takes that perfect life and he offers it on the cross, doesn't he? And he suffers the anguish. We say in our creed, he descended into hell. Why did he send into hell? He descended into hell to save us. In a few minutes, we're going to come to the table. And, you know, one of the words that I always give is that, uh, you know, Jesus holds up the cup, doesn't he? At the Last Supper, he holds up the cup and he says, this is a cup of the new covenant poured out in what? My blood, it's ratified by his death on the cross. 
And David here, he's speaking of the gospel, and he says, it's through the abundance of your steadfast love I will enter your house. I can only enter your house if I have a righteousness that is in mine. I can only enter your house unless someone gives me the righteousness I need to enter your house. But praise be to God, you have given me that righteousness. It's the righteousness of someone else. It's not my righteousness. Some translations translate this, I through the abundance of your mercy. That same saying, I like covenant love is my favorite. Uh, but I, through the abundance of your covenant love, will enter your house. I will bow down to your holy temple in fear of you. Look at verse 8. Lead me, O Lord, in your righteousness because of my enemies. Make your way straight before me. Two ways we could take this verse. We could say, okay, you know, the, the proverb goes something like this. There's a way that seems right to a man, but in the end it leads to death, right? Paraphrase of a proverb. Um, and we say, okay, Lord, this could be teaching, Lord, okay, there's a way that's by worldly wisdom. Um, we don't want to follow that. We want to follow your way, which is righteous. That's the way some would interpret this passage. Calvin rightly, I think, points out that there's another way we could look at this, and the context better suits it. And David, who has enemies all around him, and I think he's right. This is the context. David has enemies all around him, and these enemies, interestingly enough, are not Gentile enemies from without necessarily. They're, they're very often people who are within. You know, when Jesus was crucified, largely, who, was, who were the band leaders in his crucifixion? It wasn't the Romans. It was the leaders of the church at that time, wasn't it? It was from within. And what is David doing? Well, the picture here is David is surrounded by enemies on all sides, and humanly speaking, there doesn't seem to be a way of escape. Kind of think like um, Israel in front of the Red Sea and the army of Pharaoh right behind them. There doesn't seem to be a way of escape. And David is then saying, Lord, in your righteousness, because of my enemies, make your way straight before me. Now, if this is the case, here we see again something that I brought up, I think it was last week, the relationship between God's righteousness and his salvation. You know, I remember last week I said, you got to put your thinking caps on a little bit. And I, you know, the more I mention this, the more I talk about this, the less we'll need our thinking caps and the more we'll get it if we keep hearing it. But as we come to the table this morning, we're going to be thinking about 1 John 1 9. We always think about 1 John 1 9 when we come to the table, don't we? Which says, if, if we confess our sins, God is faithful and what? Just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness, right? So the, the, the forgiveness that God gives us is a forgiveness that is righteous, it's just. God is not compromising his holiness or his justice in offering the salvation that he offers us. Why? Because Jesus bleeds and dies in our place. The sin is dealt with, right? And what David is, what's David doing here? Oh, Lord, you've promised to be my God. You've promised to be my king. I need you to subdue my enemies right now. Subdue your enemies because my enemies are your enemies. Subdue my enemies and lead me out of this mess. I think that's the proper interpretation of verse 8. And in verses 9 and 10, it gets rough again. Look at verses 9 and 9. For there's no truth in their mouth. Their inmost self is destruction. Their throat is an open grave. They flatter with their tongue. Boy, that doesn't, I mean, one of, one of the, you know, and to, to listen to some gospel presentations, it sounds like all you've got to do to be a Christian is be nice, right? That don't sound very nice. Does that sound very nice? There's no truth in their mouth? 
Their inmost self is destruction. Their throat is an open grave. They flatter with their tongue. It's no wonder these verses don't get preached much. This isn't any fun to stand here and do this. But someone might say, you know, um, that sounds familiar. I think I read that in Romans somewhere. Yeah, Romans 3 against the, yeah, you're shaking your heads. So I've been taking some of you through Romans 3. And um, that's an indictment against all humanity, isn't it? In Romans 3, Gentile and Jews. We know who the Jews are. Who are the Gentiles? Everyone who's not a Jew. That's pretty comprehensive, isn't it? This is the this is this is very comprehensive. There's no truth in their mouth. Their inmost self is destruction. Their throat is an open grief. They flatter with their tongue. Look how much lying is. Lying is something that's so abhorrent to the Lord. And in verse 10, David says, Make them bear their guilt, O God. Let them fall by their own counsels. That's where I get this prayer. Let them fall by their own counsels. Because of the abundance of their transgressions, cast them out, for they have rebelled against you. Now, these words are strong, and these words are meant to be sung in public worship. Now, how can, we, how, how can we gain strength from these words? I mean, how, we, we look at this and we say, wait a second, what in the world is going on here? Let me give you a scenario. These enemies are all likelihood enemies who are from within. They're enemies who are gathered in public worship. Okay? The choir master says, all right, turn your Bibles to Psalm 5 and we're going to sing Psalm 5. And you're one of the evildoers who's plotting all this stuff, lying, scheming, all this stuff in your heart. And you're singing through the psalm and you get to verse 9. There's no truth in their mouths. Their inmost self is destruction. Their throat is an open grave. They flatter with their tongue. Make them bear their guilt, O God. Let them fall by their own counsels because of the abundance of their transgression. Cast them out for they've rebelled against you. If you're awake at all, or at least a little bit, that should be really heavily convicting to your conscience. Should it not? Imagine being one of those schemers and you've got your solder out and you're singing through your solder and you get to these verses and you say to yourself, wait a second, there is, I've been lying, I've been scheming, and we're here corporately praying words that are inspired by God that say, make them bear their guilt, O God. Let them fall by their own counsels because of the abundance of their transgression. Cast them out, for they've rebelled against you. This is prophetic. We need to understand these words as being prophetic. What do I mean by prophetic? Well, when you turn to the prophets... A lot of times when we think of prophets, we think, well, the prophets, they tell us what's going to happen in the future. And some of prophecy does that. But the bulk of prophecy is calling people back to covenant faithfulness. Read the prophets and you'll see most of it is calling people back to covenant faithfulness. What is this designed to do? To call these evildoers to covenant faithfulness. It's meant to bring them to repentance. This is always what is preferred, is that they would come to repentance. Imagine a leader of some country who's bent on evil, being the worst kind of character you can imagine, singing this and saying, wait a second, by God's grace. I'm this guy. This is me. And this is my end if I don't knock it off and I don't get right with the Lord. Think of the blessing of that. But it's also a great deterrent against 
temptation, isn't it? As we sing these things. I mean, think about it. If we, if we, if we keep these things close to our heart, how easy is it going to be for us to continue lying? Maybe we have a problem with that. You know, I mean, it's a vice just like everything else. I mean, we, we, we could go around the room. We're not going to go around the room. But we could go around the room and it would be really uncomfortable as we began to talk about our own individual vices. But each one of us, we all have them, don't we? We all have them. And that's a different thing because if you're a believer, you have these vices, whatever they might be, but you hate it. And you're not living in it, meaning you're not nurturing, you're not continually walking in it. Whereas as unbelievers, all we worried about was getting caught. We didn't worry about whether it was an infraction against the Holy One of Israel. We worried about how it looked like if we got caught doing it. Or we worried about what the consequences were for doing it. There's a huge difference, isn't there? So much more could be said. Let's look at verses 11 and 12. And I'm so thankful for verses 11 and 12. Shine, I'm thankful for them. Look at verses 11 and 12. But let all who take refuge in you rejoice. Let them ever sing for joy and spread your protection over them that those who love your name may exalt in you. Listen to that petition. And keep in mind that this is under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit that these words are given. The Holy Spirit inspired David to pray, let all who take refuge in you rejoice. In other words, he's praying that God will work in the hearts of the faithful, to work in the hearts of the believers so that we will rejoice, so that we will sing for joy, and that his protection may be spread over us. Verse 12, for you bless the righteous, O Lord, you cover him with favor as with a shield. And we might not be aware of this this morning, and I'll close with this last thought. We might not be aware of this this morning, but if you're in Christ Jesus this morning, there's a shield over you. It doesn't always feel like it, does it? But there's a shield, and what kind of shield is it? Look at verse 12. It's favor. That shield is God's favor. And other, most of the time when we refer to God's favor, we use the word grace, don't we? His grace is covering you. His grace, his mercy, his covenant love, his steadfast love. Let us take a fresh look at the cross as we come to the table this morning, and we'll take a fresh look at that favor. Amen? Heavenly Father, we thank you, O Lord, for this great psalm and these hard sayings that Father, we do get strength from, Father, as we look at these things and we look at them through a, a, a future or intended, uh, a future orientation. Father, we see, O oh Lord, that, Lord, all evil will eventually be put down. You will eventually rid your world of all evil. And, Father, the new heavens and the new earth will have none of it. And, Father, we rejoice that it will not be dwelling in our hearts any longer, Father. You will, you will rid our own hearts of it, and you will rid your heavens and your earth of all evil. And we thank you, O oh Father. We thank you for these hard sayings. We thank you for these hard sayings that give us so much strength, Father. We see that it's necessary. Your holiness makes it necessary that these things take place. Father, we see that no one is getting away with anything. Father, we see that our salvation is just. 
Father, we see the gospel and we see your love from one end of this psalm to the other. Father, we thank you for these things. In Jesus' name, amen.